I want to encourage you to look at the person next to you, and you're going to do this. You're going to say to that person next to you, keep praying for your oikos. Say it. Come on. Look at the person next to you. Keep praying for your oikos. Thank you. In the gospel of Matthew, Christ calls the disciples out, and he tells them, he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. And Reverend Dr. E.K. Bailey, in a sermon I heard him talk about, said, if you're not fishing, you're not following. So that's why I said, pray for your oikos. Pray for your oikos. has nothing to do with my sermon this morning, but I thought I'd do that. I'm so thankful, and you should be too, that you were not able to see me when I first woke up this morning. Um, it is not a pretty sight. And all you women, be quiet, because I know about your issues. All right. But when I get out of bed in the morning, the typical morning for me is my iPad or my iPhone or whatever electronic device I've used to try and wake me up is going off. And I'm trying to find the snooze button because it cannot be time to get up. I like sleeping. I don't get a lot of it, but when I am doing it, I like it. So I usually hit that snooze button at least once, maybe twice. But eventually I kind of upright myself and my feet hit the floor and I start to press all the weight of this body down on my poor feet and legs and there's a crackling and creaking sound that sounds a little different every day. It seems like it gets louder the longer I live. And those with hair as gray as mine said, amen. My hair is going every which way. My eyes aren't quite open. I can't figure out how to get all that sleep out of my eyes. And I kind of stumble downstairs without falling on the stairs so I can get to that first morning cup of coffee because for some reason in that coffee, there seems to be something that lubricates my joints and allows me to start functioning a little bit better. That's typical morning for me. That's just a, it's a normal way I get up and get started. But a few months back, I was awakened in the middle of the night, probably about 3 o'clock in the morning, to the sound of a home security alarm going off. Monk, monk, monk. Let me tell you something. When that happens in the middle of the night in my neighborhood, I'm awake. And I'm awake right now. And that's what happened. I sprang out of bed. I told my wife to stay where she was. Don't get up. Just stay right where you're at. I locked our bedroom door. I ran to the closet. I grabbed my shotgun. Doesn't have any bullets in it, but I got a shotgun. <laughs> Looks pretty impressive if you're in my house and you see me with a shotgun. And so I began to open the door, turning on lights everywhere as I went. PG&E was so happy with me that night because the meter was running by the time I got done. Every light in the house was on. I started to walk through the house. 
Left my wife in there, locked the door behind me, get ready to call the police. Of course, not if you hear a gunshot, because I had no bullets. If it's a gunshot, it's the other guy shooting at me. <laughs> but I thought of that as I fully awake. I responded urgently, immediately. The warning signs were there. Someone is in your house with you, and they don't belong there. They're an uninvited guest. They're there to harm you. They're there to take your stuff. They're there to hurt your wife. Boom, I'm awake. What is going on? Responding with an urgency to the warning sounds, the alarm that's being sounded. This morning, I want to, before I go there, let me say this. I wish in my own life that when God is talking to me and trying to warn me of something, I wish I responded as rapidly as I did that night. Sometimes when God's talking to us, we kind of just roll over in bed and pull the covers up a little higher, maybe fluff the pillow, and we just keep sleeping, even though he's warning us of something in our life that needs to change. Um, that's true of me. I, I've done that. I won't say that about you, but maybe that is similar circumstance in your life. You've done that. This morning, I want to suggest to you that God gives us a warning from his word. First Samuel 4, if you start going there right now, you can get there before I'm actually ready to start to read it. That's in the Old Testament. What kind of warning? He warns us about our spiritual life, our own personal spiritual life, our spiritual life in ministry. The ministries of Valley Bible Church could be greatly affected if we don't pay attention to the warning in this passage. You could lose you're capable of losing the powerful presence of God in your life. Now, all you theologians, which you are all theologians, you all have your own little things that you believe. I understand that it says in the Word of God that he'll never leave us or forsake us. That is true. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying he, I'm not dealing with your eternal security. I'm not dealing with the fact that he saves us. I'm talking more about that fellowship, that intimate friendship and fellowship that you should desire. He definitely desires it from you. If you lose that, you start to lose the presence of God, that powerful presence of God in your life. And so this passage is going to talk about that for us. I thought of it like this. I'm married to my wife of almost 40 years. And during that 40 years, there have been times where I was an idiot. Those of you who know me know that's not a stretch. Sean's amening it. There were times when I was being foolish, and it affected the relationship that me and my wife had and have. All of a sudden, there was a tension. There was, there was a, a uh, you know, that's when 
fellas, and none of, I, I know I'm the only one that this ever happened to, but that's when you've been an idiot and you crawl in bed and they're rolled the other way. And they ain't rolling back. It's what we call a cold shoulder. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we break relationship with God and he gives us a cold shoulder. So, let me take you to the passage, a passage that says, warning, be careful. You don't want to lose the presence of God in your life. It's a tragic story from the life of God's people in the Old Testament here in 1 Samuel 4. And they did lose the presence of God. And as we look at this story, we're going to see a warning, an alarm, a, a, a uh, 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 thing saying, what are you doing? Pay attention to this. Take action. Stop this. And that warning is going to point us to how we should respond today in our world. What we can do to prevent this from happening. What would God have us to do to make sure that we don't lose that powerful presence of him? story takes place here in 1 Samuel 4. Um, it's in a time of the judges. Eli was a priest, but he was also a judge during this period of time. And so we'll start with the, about the second sentence down in verse 1. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. That means they were preparing to battle. They're their shields were up. They had the armor on. They had their swords and spears. They, be, they arrayed themselves. They let it be known, we want to come and battle against you. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp after the battle, they come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the Philistines come against them. They go out to battle them. 4,000 are defeated. They come back. They say, let's go get the ark from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant, because surely that will help us win the battle. Do you see any problems so far in the first three verses? Have you noticed one time that they mention God? Have they one time asked God, is it okay that we go to battle? Are you going to go before us into this battle? We're seeking your presence, Lord. Will you go before us? Is it in there? Do you see it? I don't see it anywhere. That's a problem. If you're going to war, and you're going to war based on a covenant that he made, you better make sure it's okay that you go to war or that you go to battle. So what happens? They get down there. They lose 4,000 men. They run back to the camp. Okay, wait a minute. What happened here? What just happened? We've been to battle lots of times, and the Lord, take, we've, he's gone with us, and we've defeated the enemy. What happened? Aren't we supposed to be doing this? We're taking the land that he promised. It's a covenant that we have with him. What happened? 
Why did God let us lose this battle? They blame God for the loss. Which means, in my mind, when I think about it, I'm going, well, at least the elders understood that if God was with them, they would win. If he's not with them, they're going to lose. So he was definitely not with them, so they were losing. So here's what takes place. They go, they say, we know what. Let's go down and get the ark. Let's go over to Shiloh and grab that ark, and we'll bring it back across. And then surely we'll win. The problem with that, in my mind, is this little part in there. We're going to look at it. We're going to reread it again. We're at the middle of that verse 3. Let us take to ourselves, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh. The ark is in Shiloh because that's where God said to leave it. Okay? So let's take for ourselves the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They got the wrong trust in the wrong thing. They're trusting the ark. They're saying, get the ark. It will give us victory. Like it's some kind of magic box. Huh? It's like, I'm gonna, we're going to go get the ark, and we're going to bring it down here, and it is going to give us victory. They still have not talked to God. They're going to get a symbol Huh? They're a very superstitious people. They're like, oh, you know what? We didn't do so good this morning in that battle. Why don't we run over here and get the ark? And we bring it back, we're going to win. So it will give us victory. It will give us victory. Are you kidding me? It's not a magic box. God's not a magic box. He's not in a magic box that you pull down off the shelf and ask him to help you. That's not how it works. You cannot put him in a box. God does not belong in the box that you have for him. He's holding the box that you have for him. Okay? So when you look at it, you go, these people are going, hey, we didn't do so well. We're going to go get the box. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And what, what that is, think about it now. There's two things that are taking place. They believe that the Ark will help them win. So they believe in the thing instead of the God that's in the thing. All right? They believe in that. So that's one part. The other part is, you notice they use the language. Don't, they don't just say, go get the Ark. They use the language that says, go get the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. Oh, what they're doing in effect is they're saying, God, remember, we got a covenant with you. They still haven't talked to God. They're just throwing that in his face. We have a covenant. We're, take, we're, doing the, we're taking the land like you told us to do. So you got to show up. You've got to show Does this sound like manipulation a little bit, doesn't it? They're manipulating the God of the universe. If we're not careful, we do the same thing all the time. In your life, you do it. I'm not talking to anybody. I won't look at anybody right now. But it is true. I know because I do it. And I'm not, as, not near as evil as all of you. No, I'm just teasing. We're all the same. So they're, they're hoping that the ark will help them win the battle. They're um, sending down to go get it. Now, I want to look at just a couple passages in 1 Samuel 2 because the, guy that they, the guys that they go, the priests that they go to get the ark from is these guys named Hophni and Phineas. How, you know, Phineas. I know that's Phineas and Ferb for all you kids, but that's not the same guy. Okay, this is, these guys are the sons of Eli. And it's interesting in chapter 2, if you look at verse uh, 34, 
um, of chapter 2. I got to, let's hustle on this. Um, it says, this will be the sign to you. This is Samuel. This is a, a prophet. It wasn't Samuel. This is a, a, a prophet of God, a man of God, is prophesying. And he says this, this will be the sign to you which you will, will come concerning your two sons. He's talking to Eli. He says, Concern, concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die. Why? They were takers. Hophni and Phinehas were takers. They took of the meat that was supposed to go for a sacrifice. They took of it and got their portion of it before they made the sacrifice. Ah, uh, directly in opposition to what God told them to do. They, in, chapter, in verse uh, 22 of chapter 2, Eli himself hears and notices his sons are doing the wrong thing as priests. And he, he approaches them and he says, uh, Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They're sleeping with women. They're taking women at the doorway of where the Ark of the Covenant is. So they're takers. They take the meat that they're not supposed to take. They take portions of the meat that they're not supposed to take. It's only for God. It's only to be burnt before God, not for their, their consumption. But they're takers. And they're allowed by Israel, by their dad, Eli, this man of God, the judge at that time. He keeps allowing his sons to do this. Until finally the prophet says, they're going to die on the same day because they're takers. They're taking women at the tent. They're taking meat they shouldn't take. They're evil and wicked men. And in verse, um, verse 12 of chapter 2, he says this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. These are the priests. They're handling the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, they didn't know me. Sound familiar? Don't we have some spot in the New Testament where he says, we cast out demons in your name. We did all these things for you, Lord. Depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know any pastors? Have you ever heard of any pastors recently who don't really know them, but they're in it to make the money? They're in it to get, they're in there to take. They're takers. They keep taking, but they don't know our God. And God will deal with them. He's going to deal with Hophni and Phinehas. Just want to give you a little background. Then on verse 25 of chapter 2, and this is frightening. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. You see, they had gone past the point of return. So this is Hophni and Phinehas, the guys taking care of the ark. So the elders, back to chapter 4, the elders send to get the ark. Guess who comes with it? Hophni and Phinehas. Hey, we're the priests. We'll bring it over to you. All right. Still haven't approached God. 
still haven't approached Samuel, God's prophet. They're just doing all of this on their own. When we get into, uh, if you go from about verse 5 there down, we're going to hear what happens. Let's read through it. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. Hey, the ark's here. We're going to win the battle. They're excited. They shouted out. So much so that the Philistines could hear it. That's how close they were in battle. They weren't like 100 miles apart. They were close enough that they could hear each other's camps. So when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God, big G God, our God, Yahweh, has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And they could have said, this is the God that parted the Red Sea. This is the God that provided manna. This is the God that provided water in the desert. He provided a pillar at night and a cloud in the day. They could have said all of that. Because guess what, people? The Ark of the Covenant wasn't there yet when those things were going on. Take And then listen to this. I'm telling you, whoever the guys were that were in charge of the Philistine army, after they say this is, these guys got the God that did all the plagues and got the people out of Egypt, then they say, but take courage. Take courage. And be men. You will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Now, you know, if I'm a soldier in the Philistine army, and I hear about this God that's part of the Red Sea, and he's done all these things. Now you want me to go fight against this guy? I'll be like, oh, man, I'm going to be in the back of the line back here. But it's interesting. The very thing that the Israelites, that the elders of the Israelites did about the ark is the very same thing that the Philistines see. Huh? If you think about it, go get the ark. It will rescue us. These guys actually recognize that God had something to do with the ark. We don't even see that in the early part where the Israelites are talking about it. The Philistines at least acknowledge that God was, that God with a big G was the one that was involved in that ark. Is that right? You guys see that? So at least they had enough sense to go, there is a God that's associated with the ark. It's not just a symbol. So the great shout scared them, but they went right to war anyway. They said, we're going to go to battle. We're battling anyway. And, and I, I, I say that those guys, like I say, I, those guys could sell, whoever those guys are, convinced these men to go ahead and fight against this God, they could sell ice to Eskimos probably because that was incredible that they would even go fight against him. Here's what happens, though. In this battle that's coming, there's a couple different losses that take place. And so let's, let's look at it. In verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Hmm. You know, if you were just reading this and understood the story of who God was and everything, and you read that, you'd go, what? What? How did they lose? They had the ark with them. Interesting. And every man fled to his tent. They didn't regather up to figure out how they could win the battle. They figured, we're done. The presence of God is no longer with us. We're in trouble. Right? So they went back to their own tents. They didn't go back to a camp to figure out how to re, re, uh, regroup and 
fight more. They left and went back to their own places. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now, wait a minute. Without the ark, we only lost 4,000. Huh? With the ark, we lost seven, more than seven times the soldiers. What is going on? It's called putting your trust in the wrong thing. We're trusting in the ark to deliver us. No, I'm trusting in God to deliver me. I'm not trusting in Valley Bible Church to deliver me. Valley Bible Church cannot save me. It takes God to do that. That's who my trust is in. And don't get me wrong, I've had plenty of moments where my trust is not that great. But when it comes to those things, those products of knowledge, you go, it has to be him because I'm such a miserable sinner and failure. I would never choose him. And neither would you. It takes his work to do that. But that wasn't the worst thing, that they lost the battle, that they lost 30,000 men. That wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing is in verse 11. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The priests of the ark of the covenant were killed, and the ark was taken. They lost two things that day. They lost the battle and they lost the ark. In one moment, the ark was taken. And in that moment, the very, um, what's the term? The entire worship system of Israel was gone. It disappeared. They went to the Holy of Holies to get to the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's gone. Where do they go? Where do they worship now? It's gone. It's been taken. A lot of taking going on in this passage. The ark which held the holy relics, the ark which had the mercy seat that we sang about earlier. It had the mercy seat where they would bring the sacrificial offerings and the forgiveness of Yahweh upon the entire nation would take place. They have nowhere to bring their offering to now. It's gone. It's disappeared. It's dissolved. It's no more. The ministers of the ark are killed. The, the worship system of Israel is dissolved in a moment. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die to fulfill the prophecy that was earlier on their lives. How tragic it is that they lost the ark that day. And how tragic it was that they lost the presence of God on that same day. Still, I don't see anything from them that makes them cause, that causes them to repent, to ask God for help. I don't see anything. They continue in the same pathway, more interested in the symbols and the things that can help them than the God that gave them the symbols. They're trying to Instead of letting God be in control, they're trying to control God. Now, none of us ever do that, but that's what they were doing. So, in, in, there's a couple different storylines that take place now after the ark is taken. So, let's take a look at those. There's two scenes that take place. 
Now, and here it is. Now, a man of Benjamin, this is a reporting of the loss of the battle. We, we've lost the battle. Here comes the report. Now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. This was a, a, a sign of just great tragedy had taken place, sorrow. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling. For what? Are you following me? Verse 13, his heart was trembling for the ark of God. He wasn't concerned about the soldiers. He wasn't trembling for that. He wasn't trembling if they won or lost the battle. He wasn't trembling for his own sons. It was about the ark. What's happened to the ark? So the men came to tell, so the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. We had a cry of certain victory earlier that could be heard everywhere. Now we hear a cry of defeat and the loss of the ark. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who had brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. This term slaughter here, used earlier in here, is indicative of the same words used when the plagues were being cast. Just an interesting thought when you think about it. God had actually put a plague upon Israel because of their lack of acknowledging who he was. Among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was old and heavy, thus he judged Israel 40 years. Now, it's pretty indicative in the passage that the other things that had taken place, the other losses that had taken place in that battle did not have the same effect on Eli as when he heard that the ark was gone. That's when he fell off the chair and died. I want to say a little something about it, him being called old and heavy. Um, that doesn't mean he was some fat guy that deserved to die, okay, because he was old and couldn't get out of his way. Old meant that he had a certain stature. As a judge and as an older gentleman, he had a, um, a high regard by the people of who he was. And the heaviness that he had had nothing to do with his weight had more to do with the fact that he was heavy before the Lord. He knew the Lord. He knew God spoke with this man. So that was, he was a very valuable individual is what they're really talking about. So that is one of the things that happened. The second little storyline that we go to is a birth. So we have a death of the judge, Eli, and a lot of death earlier in the battle. And then we go to a birth in the second section here in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, this is referring back to Eli, Phineas's wife was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, 
and their father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the, woman who st- the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. The glory of his presence had departed from Israel. No priest and no ark. Now what? Now what do we do? They missed all the warning signs. They never in the entire passage, entire chapter 4, they never approach God. They never go and seek. Guess what? His presence was already gone. The ark was just the last straw of his presence. His presence was still available. They refused to acknowledge it. They refused to ask for it. So, the result is God's presence has left them. Very interesting. Five times in this passage, the term taken is in it. Five times it talks about take. The ark was taken. Go take the ark. Go take the ark. So they keep taking the ark. Listen to this. Very interesting how this works out. God's powerful presence is gone because he's now turned a cold shoulder toward them, because the ark has been taken, but that's not the only reason. That's not the only reason, because we already talked about that. The ark in itself didn't mean anything. The box itself doesn't mean much. It's whose presence is in the box that matters. They hadn't had that presence the whole time. Let me tell you something. If God's presence had been in that ark, they would have slaughtered the Philistines that day. But all they had was a empty box so you can't win a battle with an empty box there's no magic potion in the box so there's a lot of taking going on so you look at it and go God says I'm done with you I'm withdrawing myself I'm turning the shoulder to you the one that we're all familiar with when we've had that fight with our wife like I talked about earlier or any individual that you've had a disagreement with Until you get that relationship right, the cold shoulder stays. They never sought God. Not one time in this did they seek him. They sought things that he had done previously, but not him. They neglected to even say, you know what, wait a minute. We're the elders, we're the smart guys. I'm an elder. Believe me, we're not that smart. But here's the deal. You go, wait a minute. Couldn't one of them have thought You know, the battles we won previously, the Lord led us into those battles. Even if an enemy came against us, God, what did he tell him to do in Chronicles? Just stand right here, I'll take care of it. Jehoshaphat, there's a great enemy coming against you. Just stay right here. You you pray. What did Jehoshaphat, the difference is Jehoshaphat says, there's an enemy out there bigger than us. They're coming against us. We got to pray. It was immediate. 
He gathered everybody. The entire nation was gathered, and he said, we're going to seek God. And guess what? God delivered. Kind of how that works. What ends up happening is, if, if I know of someone who can help me in a certain circumstance, but I won't even talk to them, is that honoring toward them? Does that honor them that I didn't even talk to them when they could have helped me? That's what's going on here. Israel is refusing to honor God. They're refusing to acknowledge that he's a holy God. They're ignoring him. We're going to go out and win this battle because God's on our side, but we're not going to talk to him about it. We just know he's on our side because he made a covenant with us. And no, that's not how they won battles. If you look historically at how they won battles, they prayed and God told them, or God sent a prophet that said, go against these people. God had a word in it. He wasn't just some little tool that you could use. He actually had something to say about it. So they, they denied him, basically. They just said, you're not, we're going to treat you as, not as God. And so God says, okay, if that's how you're going to treat me, I'll withdraw myself. And I'll allow the ark to be captured. He allowed all of that. It didn't happen because the Philistines were a great enemy. God allowed this to happen. The manifestation of God is lost. It is taken. God is still present, but he gives them the cold shoulder. God's powerful presence is gone. The author is warning God's people that because they didn't honor God as God, he's now leaving them. They were trying to manipulate him into winning the battle that they couldn't win on their own. And God is not a God that will let you manipulate him. They failed to honor God as God. The elders did by complying with evil priests. They went, listen, those prophecies we read earlier in chapter 2, they weren't done in silence and in privacy. No, that prophecy happened in front of everyone. When that prophet said, Hophni and Phinehas are not men of God and they're going to die in the same day, he said that in front of everybody. It wasn't like I went down here to Dave and said, hey, you know what's going to happen? And none of you get to hear. The entire nation heard what was going to happen. And they still left him in charge of the, of the ark. That means the elders just kind of went, oh, it's okay. They could have put someone else in. They left them in. So they failed to honor God by complying with the evil priests Hophni and Phinehas. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there were, they were some bad boys. They were two wicked guys. They were really bad. And they died because of it. Um, so what happens is, we talked about this earlier, Hophni and Phinehas were known to be takers. They took offerings of meat that they shouldn't have took. They were taking women down by the actual Holy of Holies that they shouldn't have been doing. They were takers. And guess what? The elders emulate them. They do the same thing. They come against this enemy. What do they do? They go and they take the ark. That ark wasn't supposed to be moved unless God said it was supposed to be moved. But they take it and they take it into battle with them. 
So they're doing the same thing Hophni and Phinehas are doing. We're takers. And in the passage, they take the ark. And then the final takers, though, are the Philistines. And they take the ark, and the glory of God and his presence leaves with it. So they just kind of follow suit. It shows you that if, if your leadership, it shows you responsibilities here. It is my responsibility to submit and obey our senior pastor, who I love dearly. But it's also my responsibility if he's going out in left field to tell him, I'm not going in left field with you. That's the wrong direction. Look, Bible says this. We get straightened out. You don't just keep following because he's the guy in charge. If he's leading you the wrong direction, you go, wait, this doesn't seem like the right direction. Have we consulted God about this? So the entire nation's guilty. We're not going to just blame the elders. But the elders followed after Hophni and Phinehas. And that was the wrong direction. And they just started going that way and kept going that way. So the enemy starts with Hophni and Phinehas who start the taking. The elders continue to do the taking. And the Philistines finish it off. They take the ark. Indeed, Israel is complicit by being complacent. They approve the sin of the irreverent handling of the God's ark by Phineas and Hophni. Hophni and Phineas, however you want to say it, same guys. They do not treat the holy God as holy, and they risk losing the powerful presence of God. They lose the powerful presence of God. That's the warning of this chapter. That's the warning for us. We are only this far away from losing the powerful presence of God. It's called disobedience and not acknowledging him as God. That puts you in a spot where he says, all right, I withdraw. And you know it in your own personal life. When you've sinned, that Holy Spirit in you will cause you to feel a cold shoulder. You'll know, God, something is not right between us. If you keep going the wrong way, you keep going and going and going, it gets colder and colder and colder. Thank God for First John 1, 9. I can find fellowship with him really quickly. But that is our warning. You've got to treat God as he deserves to be treated. You must acknowledge him. You must pray to him. Find out what his direction is for your life. Look in the, look in the Bible, first of all. What's he telling you in there that's supposed to be directing your life? So go there. So that's the warning. That's the story. Now, how do we respond to that? What would God have us to do? This is more than just a little issue down in Israel. The warning is going to be extended to the exiles after this. It's a continued warning throughout Scripture that God will withdraw his presence. If you don't want him, he'll withdraw. If you don't acknowledge who he is, he'll withdraw. He's not going to stay and let you continue to spit in his face. He's going to turn and go. Now he's, like I said, this is not salvation. This is not eternal security. I'm not preaching against that. Those are all in place. This is just an example of what can happen. So these kind of actions that they did where they ignored God, they didn't pay any attention to him, they didn't pray to him, they didn't ask him for any help, lead to 
the loss of the ark and the, and the loss of his presence. Is that happening today? Does that happen today? How does that happen today? I got an example. And I, I'm going to say this, and I want to make sure I let you know. I am not in any way bashing these people. They are, they are people of God. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They just kind of got things messed up a bit, and things fell apart on them. And so, um, and I wouldn't say every one of them is responsible. And I'm going to use this example. Mars Hill, large church in Seattle, um, a huge ministry up there. God was using them in wonderful ways. And then it started to come apart. The wheels started to come off. But here's what they were doing at the time of the wheels coming off, you might say. At the height of their ministry, 206,000 sermons were downloaded per week. So people were getting on the internet 260,000 times a week and downloading sermons from their pastors. They had a annual budget of $30 million. They had 15 satellite locations all over the country, not just nearby where they were, but huge satellite locations. But on October 31st, 2014, on their website, this was posted. As of January 1, 2015, the Mars Hill Church will be dissolved, collapsed. They had a little bit of an Ichabod experience. The presence of God was no longer with them. And in Leadership Magazine, where I found this article, they asked some of the former pastors who were on stage, what happened? What took place that made things just fall apart? Two or three guys here. First guy, as the church structure became more refined, the driving motive became efficiency and growth, and it started to dictate the church's policies. Do you hear God in that sentence anywhere? I hear just the opposite. Another pastor. The church started as a work of the Spirit, but we quickly started to push harder and harder, trying to accomplish it with human efforts. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. No God in it. Just human effort. Another said, that in the area where they live, where that Seattle area is at, and the way the church, they kind of took on the business model of the businesses that are in Seattle, they said, he said, this is what happened. It became about power expansion and world domination. We were going to, when is enough enough? Did you, they got to 260,000 sermon downloads by following God, by using his presence to take people into the throne to save people. And then they said, we want more. And we're not even going to talk to God anymore. We're going to take a business model. They said they wanted to become the Starbucks of churches. And don't get on my Starbucks. I love Starbucks. But that business model is take more and take more and take more 
you cannot run God's operation with human effort alone. You have to include him. It's his church. What do we think we're doing? I'm going to run your church better than you know how, God. Watch, I'm going to do it. I'm not even going to consult you. I'm going to go win the battle by taking the box with me. Huh? You know what our box is today? Methods. I've come up with a new method, a new model of how we should do things. Well, is prayer the first thing? Is seeking out what God says is his word? Is that one of the first things you do? Or is it, no, I heard about this. There's this new book. I've read so many books about church growth and how to, how to transition. And all that. I'm sick of them. They all say the same thing. But you start getting into that, and then guess what? Here we go. I'm going to come up with a new brochure on how we should do evangelism. And that no, new brochure is going to take off. What did I just do? I excluded God and put a new brochure in its place. Sorry, Lisa, if you're in the room. I know she's our person that puts all our brochures and stuff together. But you, we have to be careful that we don't make it about our methods and our means. Our means is God. We use him. We go to him first. He's the one. Guess what? How many people can you save? Anybody, raise your hand. How many of you think you can save somebody? Go ahead. Raise them up. Yeah, you're all, you're all good. You're good theologically. You can't. Who saves? God saves. So my brochure, although we need to do very well in that area, but my brochure alone, my method alone, if it doesn't include him, we're in trouble. Now, how do we, how do we make sure that we preserve the powerful presence of God here at Valley? How do we do that? I've got a few things I'll suggest. First of all, we all need to honor God as God. That is the number one. But here's what we do it. It starts right here. Right from here. This pulpit. This pulpit better be saying God is God. If we start saying he's not, you either run us out of here or you find another church. You get as far away from here as you can. It starts right here. We honor God. We preach who he is. We don't back up. I don't back up for any agenda. If the word of God says it, we're going to preach it here. We've done it for 45 years. We're going to keep doing it. And I know Pastor Phil has said he's leaving when he's 75, but I think there's enough men around here who are going to stand for what he's taught us and what the word of God says to keep preaching it. And then in our reach out and outreach, don't get too caught up in the methods. We need methods. We need new ideas. we got to repackage things sometimes, but you don't repackage the truth. The truth is the truth. There's only one way to get to God. Honor God as God, and we preserve his powerful, wonderful presence. That's why you have to do it. You have to honor him. You have to make sure he's number one in your life. Don't put your wife in front of him. Don't put your husband in front of him. High school student, that kid you're dating, that person you're living with in sin, you've put them above God. You can't do it. He will withdraw his presence from you. Please don't do it. Keep him number one. You'll never be disappointed. 
You'll never be disappointed. Have you been disappointed, David? Never. Never. I've never been disappointed making him number one. He added all the things I wanted and more. You got to keep him first. I want his presence. And I don't want a cold shoulder. I want an embrace. I'm praying that you do. You see, it's not about just the senior pastor and the elders and the other pastors. It's about you. You're the ministers of Valley Bible Church, not me. I'm not the only one. Phil's not the only one. It's all of you that are ministering. What if you don't have his presence? Don't depend on my presence with him to be your presence. You get the presence of God. It's promised to you individually and then the church. I'm about done. I'm not really done. I took up, how many of you were here last week? I just took up all of Pastor Frank's time that he had and he didn't take. By the way, that alarm that went off in the middle of the night in my house yeah, um, we discovered after I had gone through every room in the house, turned every light on in the house with my empty shotgun in my pajamas, I'd probably, I'd probably look really imposing to somebody, that it was actually an alarm from one of my wife's um, television programs that she watches. <laughs> she watches this show called Murder, She Wrote. And there was some kind of fire alarm or something that was going off in that pro program that woke us up. Lynn has a hearing deficiency, so she has to have a TV on in order to be able to sleep. And so, um, yeah, um, so kind of embarrassing in reality. But, I mean, every light in my house on the outside was on. You could see us for four, four counties away probably that night. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we would call that a false alarm. Guess what? This passage that we just looked at today is not a false alarm. It's a warning. It's a warning that we all need to pay attention to. See, that Old Testament has some things in it that we can drag right across to us in the New Testament. It's profitable for us. Lord, we thank you today for your presence with us. Oh, Lord. I tremble as Eli did with the thought that your presence could ever leave us. Um, man, Lord, protect Valley. Protect each individual here with uh, a close relationship with you. One that says, once I've drawn nigh to you and understand the powerful presence of the King of Kings in my life. I never want to lose it. God, you are the one that will keep us. You said that in Jude 24. You are the one that has power to keep us. Will you continue to keep Valley? Lord, if I came back here 100 years from now, my prayer would be that somebody would be standing in this pulpit telling the people of God the truth of God.
bless us now. Bless our time. Take us away safely. Bring us back safely. Give us a wonderful week where we acknowledge who you are. In Christ's precious name, amen.